All right, y'all. We have an unforgettable two-day experience hosted by Ana in Austin, Texas, coming up on Thursday, May 2nd, and Friday, May 3rd, called Design Your Life. The event kicks off on a Thursday evening at Austin's historic Paramount Theater, where attendees will have the chance to see award-winning, best-selling, internationally recognized authors and serial entrepreneurs, Gary V. and Aubrey Marcus. For the first time ever, these two influential voices will appear on the same stage. They will talk about health, wellness, entrepreneurship, and success. But most of all, they will tackle the question of how to design your life around the ROI of happiness, not money. Special guest opener in Q, who's one of my favorite fucking poets on earth, will kick off the evening with his unique style of spoken word. And there's a VIP add-on for those who are wishing to add more. And if you're looking for more, purchase the Friday add-on at checkout and join us in an immersive all-day experience at an East Austin private venue. Enjoy keynote talks by Aubrey Marcus, David Rutherford, who's an amazing guy. He's been a guest on the podcast, and Emily Fletcher, and a storytelling workshop within Q. Lunch, drinks, dinner, all included. At the end of the day, you'll have the tools and inspiration to design your best life. Please note, tickets for the Friday add-on are limited and only available with the purchase of a ticket to the Thursday show. So if you're ready to purchase tickets, we have a link for you in our show notes. All you got to do is click on it. It'll take you right to the Paramount Theater's main page and you can purchase tickets. Thank you guys. We hope to see you there. It's going to be fucking awesome. We have a very special guest. And I know I say that often because I, I love my guests, but this one is fucking amazing. And I purposely, because I'm in the presence of greatness and such an intelligent human being, uh, I'm starting to scale back the curse words, but there's still a couple times where I get really excited and you hear an F-bomb. We have Dr. Andrew Huberman in the house today from Stanford Neurology. He is one of the smartest people I've ever sat down with. He has an incredible backstory. We're both from the South Bay, so I kind of geek out when I get to sit in front of a Bay Area kid like myself. And I know you're going to find this one fascinating. We had to split this into two episodes. And guess what? We're going to have more episodes with Dr. Andrew Huberman because I'm in love with this dude. So I'm going out to Stanford. I'm going to be a guinea pig in his lab. We're going to look at my brain. We're going to look at meditation techniques and all sorts of other goodies. Check this one out. I know you're going to dig it. Hit us up online and let us know what you think. Andrew Huberman, neuroscientist, neurobiologist. How do you? Either one. Either either way. Either one, both. Yeah. And you're out of Stanford. That's right. So let's, I mean, I looked up the Wikipedia and all that, and it's pretty detailed. You've done a lot of things and you're into a lot of things that I find absolutely fascinating. Uh, But let's start with growing up because we're both from the same neck of the woods. You're a little bit further up the peninsula. You you were born and raised in Palo Alto? I was before it was the uh, Silicon Valley monster that it is now. But yeah. And uh, which high school do you go to? I went to Gunn High School. Okay. G-U-N-N. Yep. Um, and at the time, you know, Palo Alto was a pretty, uh, you know, at least the side of the Palo Alto I lived on was, you know, middle-class place, a lot of kids of academics, um, and a lot of engineers in the South Bay. People forget that Silicon Valley was like, you know, a lot of engineers moved there. It wasn't this incredibly wealthy, uh, influential place that it is now, but it was a great place to grow up. A lot of hills to run around in, a lot of, a lot of ways to, uh, a lot of ways to entertain oneself as a kid. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I miss it. I don't miss the uh, cost of living, but I definitely miss it as a, as a landscape for sure. The cost of living is definitely something that it needs to contend with. It can't go on like this forever. A lot of people are stricken. Well, we got them all moving here to Austin. So yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> I apologize suit. in advance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, that's good. Um, so talk about growing up. Well, I mean, what got you into all this? What did you study when you were in school and, and really what led you here to where you are today? Yeah, my story um, with science is, at, you know, on the face of it, it might make perfect sense, but then there were definitely some uh, bumps and bruises and scars and scrapes along the way that make it kind of unlikely that I would, that I would end up a scientist. So basically, the short story is my dad's a scientist. So he's from Argentina. He actually moved to this country to do a graduate degree. So there wasn't much science in, um, in Argentina. So he's a physicist. So I grew up in a house where people didn't really talk about sports. My dad talked about scientists and ideas and science. And so there was a heavy influence of that. So up until about age, I would say 11 or 12, it was a pretty normal um, childhood. Grew up you know, with friends down the street, playing skateboarding, playing soccer, swimming, just kind of standard South Bay kid. And then in, um, and I wanted to be a scientist. I really thought it was really interesting. I always loved animals and the natural world. That's something we could talk about. Like my lab now works on things related to fear and courage and these kinds of things. And I've always been really interested in sort of prey predator uh, behavior. I've always been interested in how animals are really specialized in certain behaviors. So I always loved animals. So there was a lot to kind of point to the idea that I might become a scientist or a biologist. And then um, when I turned 12 or 13, my parents separated and I basically um, stopped going to school. I, uh, it, was a, it was a very high conflict situation. And um, I won't go into all the details, not because, it, you know, I probably just for sake of time, I won't go into all the details. But, you know, this was at a time when there weren't a lot of families that were, um, that were separated. And so I was one of the few kids in my school where, you know, my dad was away, my mom was going through her thing, and it was, it, it was very challenging. And so I felt deep into the skateboard punk rock community. Uh, one that I still have a pretty close ties with and that I've kind of reestablished some ties in recent years. So that basically became my family. So I was taking the 7F bus to San Francisco. I was hanging around the so-called, uh, maybe some of your listeners will, will know this, the sort of EMB crowd, which was the, the Embarcadero Justin Herman Plaza was kind of a mecca for skateboarding. So I got a fast education as a 13-year-old kid from Palo Alto in what it was like to be kind of parentless and free. And it was a very wild um, and adventurous time. Saw a lot of uh, saw a lot of fights. Got into a lot of fights. You know, um, got you know saw a lot of people crash and burn. You know, a lot of people you know become addicts. A couple you know over the years, people you know lost their minds. You know, also some kids really flourished. So I got to see some of the and know some of the guys that eventually went on to be you know found huge companies and do really well, become very famous in the you know skateboarding and um, music community. And so you um, that actually influenced my turn to science because what I saw was that, you know, some people could have a drink and never drink again or drink or not drink. It was kind of a choice. And other people took a drink and it was like something changed. And it was like, that was the last thing they did. They'd quit skateboarding or they'd always show up drunk or, you know, and then some of the kids were like all about skateboarding. They were, you know, superior athletes. And so it was clear to me that, you know, behavior wasn't really what dictated how people reacted to things, it had something to do with what was going on in the inside. And at the time, I didn't really understand any of that. I didn't know anything about psychology. I didn't know anything about biology. But basically what happened was um, somehow, I don't know how, because I barely finished high school, I applied to college and I got in. Um, so did you do like a GED? No. So I eventually graduated. I was going part-time. Um, so long story short is I, I actually was taken out of gun high school. I was let back into gun high school. So I took a little vacation, an involuntary vacation, um, was let back into school on the condition that I would do, um, that I would do therapy. 
And okay. there's a time when like nobody did therapy. So there I was like skateboarding with my friends and hanging out. And it was like three o'clock in the afternoon, three times a week. And it's like, I got to go guys. I got to go to therapy. They would laugh or whatever it was, but I actually became um, quite close with my therapist, you know, in, in a prof professionally boundaried way, but where he really um, instilled in me the idea that, you know, the mind was an interesting thing to think about and to think about how my circumstances were affecting me, but also how, what was going on inside me, you know, how I could control what was going on inside me. He gave me the book, um, wherever you go, there you are by John Kabat-Zinn, one of the kind of early books on meditation. Mm -hmm. And I was really taken by that. So I started doing a daily meditation practice when I was 15. Um, I started taking hikes on my, by myself. So I started doing some things that weren't really part of the skateboarding culture at that time, but, um, weren't standard, but, uh, yeah, over the years I, I, you know, started to develop an interest in the mind and in psychology, but I was still barely getting through school. And so I decided to actually go into the fire Academy. So I, um, I had a, basically what happened was I got a girlfriend. Um, I heard that her boyfriend was like some big, strong guy from Mountain View High School, her previous boyfriend. And mm -hmm. I was like this skinny, scrappy skateboard kid. So I started doing my push-ups and like drinking my weight gainers. You know, this was the, this is the late <laughs> yep. 80s, right? So yep. we didn't have all the, the great um, supplement and technology that we do now or knowledge. And so I started getting into weightlifting. I, I fought Muay Thai. I started getting into boxing. Um, you know, I was fighting anyway. I figured I might as well fight in a gym, you know, and, and yeah, learn how to do that. Know, get some skills. Exactly. Right? And, you know, and, um, and so I learned a little bit about how to, you know, harness aggression and how to, how to really think about my adrenaline response and use it. So that was all happening simultaneously. And the firefighter thing was really that I wanted a job where I could, I like, I love the camaraderie of skateboarding. I love being surrounded by like a big pack of guys that, you know, and we would just go, you know, like terrorize, you know, back then, <laughs> um, terrorize curbs. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't real criminals. There were a few kind of criminals and, you know, sociopaths in the bunch, but mostly it was just a bunch of like fatherless kids, mm -hmm. kids that whose parents weren't really interested in participating in their sports life. So they took it upon themselves to do that. So the firefighting community was great because, you know, it's a, big group of guys. It was mostly guys then. There were a few women in the, in the uh, departments, but I started taking fire uh, science classes down at Mission College. Yep. I did the same. Did you? Yeah, uh -huh. it was great. I loved it. And it was like, I mean, any to me, any job where like working out was part of the job. I thought this is fantastic, you know, and people like firefighters. People have a mixed response to cops, but everybody loves firefighters, mm -hmm. you know, I like dogs. You got to have a dog at the engine house. So it was, it just was the right community for me. And then, um, so I wrote a college college entrance essay, um, talking about how I, I wanted degrees so that I could, um, run a station house. And I got into UC Santa Barbara, Lord knows how, I don't know how, um, I don't even remember taking the SAT. I did take it, but I don't even remember taking it. So somebody either messed up or saw some, you know, saw some glimmer of something. Um, and I went off to UC Santa Barbara, mostly cause my high school girlfriend went there. I just want to be near her. She was my family at that point. And, um, you know, and I, I was trying to reestablish ties with my parents, but that was the reason I went. And after two quarters there, uh, I left. It was just, it was, I wasn't going to class. I was getting in fights. It was just a mess. It was like, I, I went there and there were all these kids that, um, for them, it was this new environment with a first exposure to drinking, first exposure to drugs. I'd kind of been through all that. Mm. And I was really lucky that I never really liked drinking or drugs. It was not my thing. I just, for me, it was adrenaline. I, I loved that. And, um, and I had this drive and I didn't know what to put it into. So I left and um, I moved home. And at that point, a bunch of friends that I had grown up with um, were really starting to fall off the cliff. So all that partying and all that 
like lack of regulation was really starting to show up. You know, a couple of people commit suicide. A guy lost his mind, schizophrenia due to, you know, methamphetamine use. And like, it was just crazy. And so I looked at that and I compared to what I'd seen in college. And I was, you know, I thought, you know, I think it's clear I'm not going to become a professional athlete. You know, I just, I, I love athletics and I, I love sports, but I just never had a, a real talent for it. I'm hardworking, but I didn't really have a talent for it. And so, um, I just decided, I, it, you know, I remember the day, it was actually July 4th, 1994. I'd gotten into this big melee fight with a bunch of guys in, in Isla Vista, the little town there. And it was their fault. You know, I insist it was their fault. They were robbing us and it was a mess. But I realized, you know, I was going to end up dead or in jail. It was just clear. I'm like, you know, and nobody's going to care. You know, when you're 15, people are like, oh, you know, he's troubled. You know, his parents are this and that. And I realized like, it's just going to be another story of just, you know, kind of just to trash. And so... I decided um, I had a decent enough mind for remembering things. I always had a pretty good memory and I liked ideas. I liked concepts. You know, I'd much rather, in, on any given day, like I, I think people are great, but I'd much rather talk about concepts and ideas than people. Um, people are wonderful to know and have relationships with, but I was just really excited about ideas. And so I thought, you know what? I'm just going to take everything I've got and work as hard as I can in school and just get good at that. And I'll figure it out later. You know, it was kind of, it was kind of in desperation. So I moved back to Santa Barbara. I re-enrolled and I got, um, a little studio apartment and I didn't live with anybody, you know, and I just lived alone. All I did was lift weights and study. I just memorized my textbooks and I made it a point to like quantify everything. So while I was trying to get stronger in the gym, I was also making a point to get like the high, you know, they'd post the curve, the sort of distribution of scores and they didn't have names next to it. They'd have numbers. It was all coded, but I was determined to be like the outlier point on the far end. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't in competition with everybody else. It was just me. I'd never been the best at anything. You know, one of the things growing up skateboarding was really tricky. Like I'd go to these uh, skate parks and you'd see that, you know, I remember growing up near seeing like the young Danny Way, you know, the young Colin McKinn. These guys are like spinning 540s and kick flipping and indie grabbing, you know, and there I am just like trying to get off the, like the mini ramp lip as hard as I can, you know, and just doing the very best I could. And I realized, you know, I was way far behind, but suddenly with academics, I realized, you know, this is, it's kind of like running long distance. It's like the harder you work, the more you get back. Mm. And it's, and the more frustration you feel, the more you're probably learning. And so I just took to it. And at first it was psychology. And then I, this guy, uh, I took an abnormal psychology course and there was an amazing professor. His name was Harry Carlisle. And he was telling me about schizophrenia and about depression. And he was talking about neurochemicals. You know, this is in the early nineties and so there wasn't even a field of neuroscience. And so I was like, oh, this is amazing. You know, he's telling me all the reasons why I saw this suffering. He's also telling me all the reasons why some people were just incredible. I learned a lot about hormones and behavior. So I don't have a, um, a lot of formal training in it, but I did a master's degree at Berkeley eventually on sort of um, endocrine relationship to behavior. So that, you know, if you're interested in fitness, you know, this was, be I think, you know, Muscle Media 2000 had just come out, but, you know, there wasn't really a lot of, there was no internet. So there wasn't really a lot of discussion about hormone regulation, but there I was learning all about how things like testosterone and DHT and alpha-5 reductase and all this enzymatic activity and biochemistry was impacting things like aggression, mating, all the, you know, um, it was incredible. I was like, this is definitely the land for me. So I started working in his lab and, um, my first project was to inject MDMA ecstasy into rats 
This is That's like, amazing. Yeah. So we, this was this was the early '90s, right? So it was like people. Were, there were some people who had died. Like it wasn't that many, but a couple of people had died from overheating on ecstasy at raves. Yeah. And so he studied thermal regulation, and it's still an interesting question: how you know how warm you are relative to your environment, and how to regulate temperature. So we were injected. We we just called up one of the pharmaceutical companies, ordered a vial of uh, pharmaceutical grade MDMA, and we're injecting rats with this stuff. And he was kind of a- You still oh, have the same source? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it's still there. Now it's because it's schedule one you need. Yeah. Um, yeah. I confess I've never tried MDMA. I, oh! I, I've never tried it. I, I You know, it's it's interesting. My, You're still the, young. Yeah. My, my, I, I, youngish, 43, but- um, <laughs> But we were looking at the effects of MDMA and I was working in his lab and he was an amazing guy because he he wouldn't even know what this meant, but he was kind of a punk rocker at heart too. You know, he he was an ex-Navy guy. He um, he drank coffee in the lab. He'd smoke in the lab and he'd like go put his head in the fume hood so that like, no, he wouldn't get caught. And, you know, I just, it, it, I needed that kind of mentor. And so we started uh, working together, publishing papers. I was a straight A student at that point. And he pulled me aside and he said, you know, you, you've got this incredible work ethic. You should consider graduate school because they'll actually pay you. And I was like, ah, you know, my dad was an academic and I'm still kind of resentful of the, my, this childhood stuff. And then I realized that the only person who was in my own way was me, right? Like as long as I kept a resent toward, you know, I have a great relationship with my dad nowadays, but like, I was like resenting somebody for the the job they had. And I, what was I going to do? Shoot myself in the foot and not become a scientist because my dad was a scientist and I was angry. So luckily I had this mentor to um, encourage me. He never pushed too hard. I decided that's it. So I wrote down my goals. It was going to be PhD by the time I was 30. I want my own lab, just like him by the time I was 35. And I wanted tenure at a great university by the time I was 40. And I had that piece of paper up on my wall until I hit those goals. And I think, you know, for me, just, um, so the trajectory was a bumpy one in, but I can honestly say that then and now the science that I'm doing in my lab is very much influenced by um, <clears throat> the pains and struggles that I had then, as well as the ones that I observed in other people. So nowadays, a huge amount of my life is spent trying to research and understand fear, anxiety, depression, even things like neural regeneration, which is important to people in the, not just in the fight community, but in the sports community, in the military community, and lots of communities, so like head injury. And I'm very involved in public education. So I do a daily one minute Instagram neuroscience post, you know, and, and it's not geared toward um, any specific actionable things right now, but it's really because when I was 12, 13, 14, you know, I was desperate for information and I didn't know where to get it. So I'd go to, you know, like tower books or whatever in Mountain View and hide in the stacks and read, read whatever I could about everything from, you know, like sports fitness to, I was a young, young man. So like sports, fitness, sex, and psychology, I mm -hmm. remember, you know, and then people walk by, I don't kind of like hide, you know, or something, but it was just, I was just hungry for information. The sex books behind the psychology. <laughs> well, there wasn't much back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There wasn't much back then, you know, but now like things are so evolved. Now there's all this information, but so that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a professional neuroscientist. I've been doing that for 20, 20 plus years. Um, and the, like I said, the road in was bumpy, but there was that early seed of, you know, my dad being a scientist and, and my grandfather was a scientist for that matter. And I've just always been um, super curious about, you know, how the world works. And, you know, if you think about the human being as an animal, there are a lot of animals on this planet. We understand a little bit about how they work. I'm just very curious about like, why are we here? What, what are we good at? What are we less good at? How can we use that to evolve our species? And um, yeah, so that's, a, that's one long, very long 
uh, run on sentence. Um, but I appreciate the the invitation to to tell the backstory. And yeah, 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 I absolutely yeah. love it. Well, there's a lot that I want to ask you about. But first, you know, I, I didn't realize that you had studied the endocrine system and gotten into hormones. Have you looked at how hormones, particularly uh, male and female sex hormones, play into neurochemistry? Um, so I haven't looked at that specifically in a number of years. The system I was working on when I was at Berkeley was the melatonin system. Um, so, uh, so briefly, um, I think most people know this, but maybe if they don't, so melatonin is this incredible timekeeping signal, right? So when days are long and you get a lot of light, you, light suppresses melatonin through the eye to the pineal and the pineal is the only source of melatonin in the body. So when days are long, the melatonin pulse that you get is very short. Okay. When days are short, the melatonin pulse is long. So this is the ancient timekeeping system that every animal has in order to know when it is in time. And what I mean by that is as the earth goes around the sun and it's tilted, the day length changes. So the amount of sun coming in is different. So animals that are seasonal breeders, right? When the melatonin pulses, let's say yesterday it was, so it's spring here now. Um, and so let's say the melatonin pulse was, you know, eight hours yesterday and the day before, but today it's a little bit longer. It might be 8.2 hours. Your body does a slow integration of that and says, oh, you know, the amount, the amount of daylight is getting longer. It doesn't know daylight. It only knows how much melatonin is there. And so there's less melatonin. And so now the reproductive system can actually prepare itself for longer days because all animals are anticipating longer days as a time when there's more lights, so you can forage without danger. There's more food available. And as a result, preparing to reproduce and create young is like a good thing. Now, if the days were getting shorter and the melatonin pulse was getting longer, then there would be a, a sort of slow signal to your entire body to start suppressing the sex hormone axis and to start preparing for basically the winter when there's going to be less food. It's not a good time to have young and reproduce. Now, some animals are so tightly wound to this circuitry, this what melatonin circuitry, that like, for instance, in a hamster, if you take a hamster and you put it in short days, its testes shrink from the size of like, you know, a marble to the size of a grain of rice within about four days. Wow. It's incredible. Now in humans, we're not seasonal breeders. We can override that, but there are some remnants of this system in, in humans as well. So it's something that people don't think about. So like my first daily practice every morning is to get a, a morning light pulse to the eyes. A lot of people don't know this, but the effects of daylight on mood, on stem cells, actual stem cells in the skin and in hair and on all these endocrine functions are through the eyes. The only source for the body to know what, what time of day it is and when in the year you are is, is by getting light through the eyes, through these specialized receptors called the melanopsin ganglion cells. Incredible discovery made by my good friend, Samer Hattar at Johns Hopkins. Like, so, you know, getting that light pulse is key to telling your brain and body what time of year it is. Now, if you get a little bit of extra light, you're, you're sort of priming your system for more sex hormone secretion and receptor activity. So now you asked about neurotransmitter sex hormone interaction specifically. So that's a really interesting one. So, um, it's, it's complicated because of all the feedback loops, right? You know, mm -hmm. you, you, as, as everyone knows, you know, if you, if you ramp up anything too high, eventually it gets downregulated. This is sort of the essence of, you know, performance enhancing drugs and the need for off cycles and why off cycles are painful for people to do and whatnot. But here's the sort of general relationship. The uh, dopamine and testosterone and 
epinephrine tend to go hand in hand. They're kind of close cousins. So there's actually a guy, um, you, you probably know him um, probably better than I do, Duncan French, who's out at the UFC training center. So I haven't he, met him. Yeah. So he, he did his PhD work and Duncan, forgive me if I'm, if I'm, uh, messing up some of the details, but, um, the way I recall him telling me this is his, his PhD work. He has a doctorate, um, was in the relationship between adrenaline and testosterone secretion. So it turns out that in the short term, high bouts of adrenaline actually promote secretion of testosterone. But over the long run, if you have too much adrenaline, then testosterone secretion is blunted. And this makes sense when you think about it evolutionarily, like one of the core things that my lab works on that is really important just for everyone to understand is that not because I work on it, but because it's just important is that autonomic arousal, like being in a, like a kind of on or go mode is ev evolution's way of biasing you towards certain behaviors. So I know everyone's in intermittent fasting, but if you fast long enough, you're going to get agitated be long before you get tired and you feel lethargic. That agitation was designed to mobilize you to go find food. Okay. If you are lonely or you go without sex for long enough, you're going to feel agitated and lonely and sad. That response was designed to get you to go find a mate and to develop social ties and mate. So you're being leveraged, just like if you eat a big meal and you're relaxed or after sex, you're going to feel this like postcoital bliss that was designed to get you to relax. Right. Mm. And so when you start thinking about the neurotransmitters and the hormone systems, the ones that operate together you know, they, they embody a kind of logic. It's not random. So things like serotonin and things of the kind of opioid system tend to blunt people's level of kind of um, activity and they kind of make people lethargic. They tend to make people kind of blissful and they, bliss is wonderful, but it's not, bliss doesn't cause you to seek, right? Testosterone, adrenaline, dopamine. Those are the kind of the things that are going to get you to go seek and look for things to start foraging for things. And on the extreme, like in a drug, you know, an addicted, um, drug addicted person, it really shows up where like the amphetamine user or the dopamine user is hungry all the time for their, for their fix. Right. You know, and it's like this rabid kind of seeking. Right. And it's not, um, you know, some of the side effects of those, of those drugs include sort of hypersexuality and things of that sort, you know, to a limit. Right. And so, um, dopamine and testosterone tend to hang out together. Now it's interesting because, uh, and I always love this study. So um, prolactin is a really interesting one that people don't think about a whole, whole lot. Prolactin is responsible for milk letdown in, in females for, for nursing. But in males, there's really good data, beautiful study published in Nature a few years ago that even, let's say um, a man and a woman uh, conceive a child. There's a tendency for the man to also gain weight close to the delivery. Now, some people are really good with their behavior, right? They take, like yourself, they take, you know, I just met you now, but obviously, you know, you're in great shape. You take great care of yourself. You're, you're paying attention to your diet. You know, think about a lot of your friends. You got a lot of friends. They all got have dad kids. bod. They all got dad bod, right? Why? Now, there's actually an evolutionary mechanism that causes prolactin secretion in males as the young start to show up. It does two things. It suppresses sexual appetite and it puts on fat stores. And the reason is it's preparing the fathers for long nights of no sleep, mm. right? So we, you know, we evolved all these systems on that background. Now, in addition, um, mating. So before orgasm, uh, sorry, I should be specific. Before ejaculation in males, the dopamine levels are very high. Testosterone is increased by sexual activity. And then there's a after uh, ejaculation, not after orgasm, but after ejaculation, there's a uh, secretion of prolactin. That secretion of prolactin is actually responsible for the refractory period during which you can't uh, obtain an erection. Oh, you know, now, and in the duration of that prolactin response dictates how soon, again, a male will 
um, will seek sex. Now, a kind of an interesting one, when I was studying this stuff, there's a, what are called pheromonal effects. So hormones are things that exist within the body. They're kind of moderately slow acting and they affect tissues at a distance. Okay. Pheromones are sort of like hormones, but they operate between individuals. So there's a famous thing called the Coolidge effect. I think your listeners might appreciate this one. So the story goes, I hope I get this right, that uh, the science is right, but I hope I get the anecdote right, that President Calvin Coolidge was visiting a um, chicken farm, you know, and he was there with his wife and they were walking through and the, uh, the guy that was hosting them showed them this rooster. And he said, you know, this is an amazing rooster. You know, he can copulate, right? He can have sex something like 400 times a day. And his wife, Coolidge's wife, kind of elbowed him and said, oh, you see that? And he said, yeah. And Coolidge said, yeah, but let me ask you this. S- same hen or different hen? And the guy said, different hen. <laughs> yes. So here's the reason. It's called, there's, it's a real effect. You can find it in the endocrine books. It's called the Coolidge effect, right? So the Coolidge effect is that the introduction of a novel female after copulation inhibits prolactin. So there's a real endocrine you know, mechanism for this, where the presentation of a novel female reduces prolactin and enables the male to, to, um, to, uh, copulate again, to have sex again. So it's, you know, these are ancient mechanisms, but you say, okay, well, what is it really? Like as a scientist, you get, you, you sit back and you go, well, what is it really about the presentation of that novel female? And what it is, is it's the dopamine. It's the anticipation of copulation that causes a secretion of dopamine. Dopamine inhibits prolactin. So you specifically ask for interactions between the endocrine and neurotransmitter system. Dopamine inhibits prolactin and then frees up this system, this biological system for mating. So what the reason I find this amazing is that what it says is that hormones and neurotransmitters are working together to essentially control the effect like how well motor neurons in the body work, because ultimately copulation is the, the result of motor neuron. So that innervate the, you know, all the, uh, the genitalia, right? So what this means is that social context, right? Novelty, familiarity, they're affecting neurotransmitters that are affecting hormones that are affecting the animals. And in, you know, some of this stuff, we can talk about human pheromone effects too, like the ability to either perform or not perform an activity it's incredible, right? And so what it says is that like, we love to think that like in this social context, we can override everything with thinking, but there are some very hardwired systems within the body. Now I'm not, um, I'm from the Bay Area. So like you've got every variation and uh, kind of relationship theme there. I'm not a proponent of necessarily of, of any particular relationship thing, as long as it's consensual and both people or peoples are happy or yeah, the people's as long as involved are happy. And up and yeah. As long as street. people are happy, it's yeah. consensual. Like I, 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 I'm, I'm a scientist, not, I have no judgment. Um, how could I? Right. But in the sense that these systems existed for very good reason, you can start looking at pretty much any system or any behavior, and you can start pulling it apart at, from these hormone interactions, like the women's synchronization of their menstrual cycles. The data have been criticized a little bit recently, but all women will tell you, you know, when they live in close quarters together, their menstrual um, cycles um, start to synchronize. That's definitely through a pheromone effect. Is that so the men know when to go on a hunt? It's unclear exactly, you know, because in certain tribal communities, um, it's thought that men and and women, um, you know, might've coexisted more closely than others. But, you know, there are a lot of cultures like where men and women don't actually touch for two weeks out of the month. And then for two weeks out of the month, they're... uh, they're incredibly uh, sexually active. Mm. And that was designed to get them to both reproduce as well as to maintain 
um, high levels of interest in their specific partner and a monogamous oh, partner see. throughout the marriage. You know, it's a pretty interesting idea. Yeah. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that culturally one can modify. Um, this does sort of open up interesting questions about, you know, what sorts of behaviors we're doing that, um, you know, lend themselves better or worse to sustaining a marriage, to child rearing, all sorts of things. But anyway, we could, we could spin off into pheromone effects for hours, but, um, the one I find really interesting and that's kind of, that I think might be relevant to your listeners is about competition. You know, male, male competition is something that in some cases discouraged. I think around here, we're in the on it facility. I think there's a lot of male, male, there's a lot of fighting goes on here, right? Mm -hmm. So the utility of fighting, there's a beautiful study that was published in, I'm riffing long. Is this okay? No, this is perfect. All right, I'm, I, I fucking, feel, I'm tossing you, know, you I say, underhanded softballs okay. and you're knocking them out so, of the park. All right. So I always say there's two, um, there's two things you never want to say to a professor. One is, uh, you know, tell us what you're interested in. And the second is take your time. And you never want to say those in the same sentence because <laughs> you run the risk going all day, but just interrupt me at any point. But I wish my lab had done this study, but it is so amazing. So there's this paper published in Science and where things are published is really important, but Science Magazine is excellent showing that you take two rats or two mice and you put them in a tube, they'll fight. One will try and push the other one out. It's just a natural behavior. They don't like being in there and they'll try and push one out. The loser, the one that gets pushed out will have a higher tendency to lose on subsequent fights with other competitors. The winner will have a high te higher tendency to win. So we all kind of go, okay, yeah, winners become winners, et cetera. So the three things that are really incredible about this though, is that if you push one animal from behind so that it wins, it becomes a winner, even though it wasn't responsible for the win. Okay. So this last year, there was this paper published where they looked in the brain. They were like, okay, what part of the brain is involved in this? Like, what's really going on? Because that's just a phenomenon. And one of the things I dislike most, frankly, is when science comes out, they'll drop some really interesting study. It's all over, you know, all over the major papers and newspapers and magazines. And, and then all of a sudden it's like, and people run with it, but we don't really know where to run with it or what to do. And it often can be misused, in fact. But they really worked out the mechanism. So they looked at the part of what parts of the brain are active in the winter. And it's this area called the medial prefrontal cortex. Now, this area is thought to be involved in everything from thinking to anxiety, et cetera. But when they increased the activity in this region, an animal became a winner every single time. And when they decreased the activity, the animal became a loser every single time. Oh. So you go, okay. And what's really interesting is that was true, not just in this tube battle, but if you then put the animals into like a small little arena where it's really cold, mice don't like the cold, but there's a little corner that's warm the alpha male always gets the warm spot. The winner got the warm spot every time. So it transfers. It's like you win on the, on the mat and you win in business. You win at, at, you know, in mate competition. You win it all. It's like they became winners across the board. And it turns out the way it was doing it is to change the internal, like the interpretation of the anxiety response. So when there's fighting, there's always going to be autonomic arousal. There's just no way to be completely relaxed the whole way through. I don't care whose arm goes up at the end. Both people were in a heightened state of alert, right? But there's something about this brain area and how it interprets anxiety. And it looks like that the winner takes whatever level of internal arousal, like autonomic arousal is occurring, and it converts that into a thought that they're winning. There's something about believing in your own ability to win and the fact that whatever stress you're experiencing is a good thing that puts you in the winning bracket. And it's just incredible. So these are, and so my lab has been exploring this in humans in a different way um, and various things related to the, the stress response. But what it says is that the internal response, that stress and cortisol response, it's 
100%, at least in terms of competition, it's 100% how you interpret it, right? If you think of it as like, oh my God, I'm drowning or oh my goodness, I'm, I'm really in trouble or oh my goodness, I'm losing, there's a good chance you're going to lose if you try and suppress that response. But if you can ride that response and you can push it, there's that outer limit. I think you're nodding. So I have a feeling you know this from your own experience. There's a point where you realize that this is actually designed to get you someplace. It's not something to tamp down. And I think one of the things I'm really um, pushing nowadays is the idea that you know, we've worked so hard to kind of keep stress at bay, like, and which is great. We meditate, we're into our breathing, we do all this stuff to keep stress at bay. Sleep is really important. But there's another side of the coin, which is that that intense response was designed to be leveraged to, to endpoints that evolutionarily were, were good. And so I think that as humans, we need to rethink the stress response and really understand that it, it's like a wave. You can ride it someplace that you couldn't without it. And you, that it's really, it's a, potentially like a, like rocket fuel, but people are trying so hard to suppress that response. And in this experiment anyway, even though it was rodents, it's very clear that, tr- that if the anxiety response is read out as kind of a bad thing and you're trying to suppress it all the time, there's a good chance you're going to lose. Whereas if you can leverage that, there's a good chance you're going to win. Yeah. So much of that makes sense to me, obviously. That's why I'm over here just shaking my head, like a little, little bobblehead. Uh, First, like there's this idea, and you, it, I'm, are you familiar with uh, why zebras don't get ulcers? Uh, yeah, so yeah, this is my colleague Rob Sapolsky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So great phenomenal. book, great yeah. book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's so much of this comes back to acute versus chronic stress, right? So if you're chronically stressed due to your job, your relationships, those kind of things, or shitty diet, whatever the case is, it's pretty obvious you're going to look for that need to reduce stress, and that'll be your focus. Mm-hmm. And then if you can figure out where the acute stressors the best ones are that move the needle for you and you live in a lesser stressed environment, you're not chronically stressed, you can introduce things like that. If you're chronically stressed and you go to do heavy back squats in a cold tub, you might get sick or run down mm-hmm. or beat up or injured, mm-hmm. right? Right. What are the things that you're looking at in terms of acute stressors that can be really beneficial to people? Yeah. So, um, and here I'm going to weave back and forth between my lab science and then, you know, I've been interested and involved in sort of whatever you want to call it, you know, people call it biohacking. I don't even know. I'm not sure what exactly to call it, but they're the things that I do. And then there are things my lab works on. So, um, and I'm involved in some consulting for people in different communities that care a lot about high performance. So we could talk about that as well. But so my lab, um, my lab's focus has been to really try and understand mechanistically, what is this thing we call the stress response? And how can it be leveraged toward what we call adaptive outcomes, which could mean winning on the mat, could mean winning in a race, could mean um, succeeding in, uh, finishing a college or a graduate degree, you know, under all high stress, different duration, competitive environments, right? Um, <clears throat> so uh, last year we discovered this brain area in the central thalamus. It's called the ventral midline thalamus. I didn't really discover it. My graduate student working in the lab, Lindsay Soleil, discovered it. And this is an area that has two channels. One channel activates the fear kind of freezing response. And the other channel activates a, what we call a confrontational response in response to a threat. The triggering of one part of this brain area causes the animal to freeze or to run and hide, but under different conditions where the different part of this brain area is activated, the animal literally walks out and confronts the threat every single time. And only if the threat is there. So it's not like turning the animal into like some sort of rage machine. It's Mm. only if there's a a threat. So really it's kind of a fear to courage shift. It was pretty remarkable when we saw this. Um, 
we're doing the same sort of work in humans using virtual reality. So one of the things that we've built is a kind of, par- you know, I got tired of just working on animals. I think it's important. It can tell you where to look in the brain, but humans are what we care about. So we built a virtual reality um, chamber essentially where people can have very realistic experiences of diving with great white sharks, of heights, of attack dogs, you know, pick your, pick your poison. And then we look at their behavior and we're measuring their breathing, their heart rate, et cetera. And in some cases, because we have access to patients from neurosurgery, we're actually recording from the human amygdala with wires dropped down below the skull into the human amygdala. So here's what we're finding, that there are certain modes of confrontation to to threats. And what threats, I don't mean doing something stupid, like jumping in front of somebody with a gun just because you think that's a good idea. I mean, things like leaning into uh, challenging uh mental work, learning hard, you know, strain and, and hard thinking, leaning into hard physical work, et cetera, that is intensely rewarded over time. It's tied in with the dopamine system. There we go, dopamine again. This circuitry is tied into the dopamine system such that over time, the stress response comes to be interpreted differently, that that feeling of internal arousal, heart beating faster, lungs breathing faster, um, pupils dilated, the so-called stress response actually starts to become a positively reinforced um, experience. Now, this um, brings up notions of Carol Dweck, my co- also a colleague at Stanford's growth mindset. Growth. Uh, Carol's a close collaborator of mine now. Growth mindset is one of these things that's sorely misunderstood. So just briefly, um, and I think uh, Carol would approve of this definition, growth mindset is not just believing that you can get better. That's part of it right? If you do hashtag growth mindset on Instagram, you get millions of hits. And (laughs) the things that are related to it are not often really growth mindset. But first of all, you have to believe that you can be better. Second of all, what Carol had discovered is that there's about 8% of kids that have this so-called growth mindset, where even though they knew they couldn't get the right answer on an exam, they were highly motivated to do these really hard problems. Growth mindset is about getting dopamine reward from friction, from effort, and from strain, which is different than thinking about the outcome. And inevitably, people or kids that have growth mindset are spec- perform spectacularly well. So this, the way to adopt this is to think when you're in the most painful point of something that you're exactly where you need to be, that you're, that you're on the ladder, so to speak. It's not, and it's not, as Carol and I often talk about this, it's not being delusional and saying, oh, I'm winning. Because actually positive thinking, sometimes you're actually badly wrong. If you think you're winning, like... A, and this is bad because I, I would never spar him. But like, I remember in the Algeri-Pacquiao um, fight, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I like boxing. My grandfather fought and was also a biochemist. And so like, we have that relationship over time. And I watched, you know, I watched that fight and, you know, Algeri was like badly outdone. And he was in his corner and his coach is telling him, you're doing great. You're winning. You're winning. Yeah. That is not that. growth mindset. No. Okay. That is called, uh, that's called just false that's just called, that's just, that's lying. Delusion. Yeah, delusion. Yeah. Now, I think he was making his best effort. And, you know, I sometimes go Long Island. So I hope if I show up in Huntington, they don't beat me up because that's where Jerry is. But I think they understand what I'm saying. That telling yourself you're winning when you're actually losing is wrong. You're, but that's because you're comparing where you are now to the outcome you want. Mm. The key in, is to compare yourself of where you are now to where you need to be in the moment. And so the strain and effort of the moment is the, is the thing to pay attention to. You know, we put so much emphasis on paying attention to the long-term goal that sometimes we forget that if you pay too much attention to the long-term goal, you're going to start judging where you're at relative to that goal. So one thing that we've been exploring in humans is the extent to which people who can take on adaptive decisions can take that uh, adaptive behaviors, can take that stress response and kind of move the horizon in closer and just focus on, okay, I'm in a high stress regime. This is really painful. We see this in 
Uh, we work on people with generalized anxiety who are trying to overcome fear of heights. And just walking across a virtual height plank can be terrifying for them. But if they can get one step in front of the other, despite high levels of anxiety, they can eventually overcome that. And so we've been looking at everything from how breathing affects the anxiety response to heart rate, pupil size, et cetera. I'd be happy to talk about all that in as much detail as you like. But I think the principle to take away is this, that the growth mindset is not about suppressing anxiety so that you're able to move, cruise through things with ease. That's just one part of it. It's really about trying to understand that stress response as key to your growth. It's absolutely key. And I think people that you know, lift weights or run long distance or are involved in competitive sports, they fundamentally understand this, but even they kind of migrate away from it over time where we, recovery is super important, but you need the stimulus, right? And the stimulus for growth is that stress response. And if you think about it, evolutionarily, let's say we were all living in a little clan here in the Onnit offices, and we didn't know anything about the outside world. We would start to kind of eventually what drove people to leave was they didn't have enough of what they needed. There's just sort of the seeking, right? So if you had enough, everything, you had enough mates, enough food, enough water, you'd be fine. But at some point there was some deprivation. And so we had to do a risk benefit analysis. And so it was really about taking that anxiety and venturing out into the unknown to find resources. Some people died and some people succeeded and they were rewarded. And with that reward came the idea that, ah, there's something about looking out into the environment that's useful that can allow me to have more than I have in the moment. But you can't divorce yourself from the anxiety of wondering whether or not things are going to turn out okay. You can't divorce yourself from the anxiety of of strain and effort. There's just simply no way. And in fact, you weren't really designed to do it. So to kind of peel this around to a practical answer because I often listeners and you know and people want to know well, what do I do with this is you know I think the field of wellness and biohacking and high performance is great but it lacks definition so one thing I'd really like to see more of in the in these communities and in the scientific community for that matter is more careful definition like what is mindfulness like really what what are we really talking about what is stress and what are stress mitigation processes that are useful so one thing I think is really useful is think about real-time tools versus offline tools. I believe personally that everybody, whether or not they're MMA fighter, they're in a CrossFit, they're running ultras, or they're a student in class that doesn't do anything physical, whatever it is, has four tools. One tool to get you to mitigate your stress response in real time. So let's say the stress response hits. You need to keep it, you can't let it go too high or too low. You know, you don't want to suppress it, but something to do that. You also probably want an offline tool that allows you to raise your ceiling on what stress feels like. You know, I'm buds with Wim and I've known him for a long time. And like, you know, I think Wim Hof breathing is in particular is a useful tool for kind of shifting your perception of what stressful is. But it's an offline tool. It's not, you can do it in real time, but it's not, you're not going to start Wim Hof huffing in the middle of your like rolling jujitsu because yeah. your breathing has got to be devoted to other things. So you need offline tools and real-time tools to, to cope with stress. And I think people need real-time tools and offline tools to bring themselves into heightened states of arousal, right? So there are times when there's, when you're actually too low on the arousal plane and the key is to get higher up there where you can access even better levels of performance. And so I think the, the so-called autonomic nervous system, it, it's absolutely under our control. It's a total misnomer. It's just that your heart rate and your breathing are taken care of on their own. You don't need to flip the on switch. You wake up every morning and you know if everything's going well, your breathing and your heart rate is going the way it should. But you absolutely have levers that you can control and move in order to shift those. And I think that um, there's been a lot of focus on like, okay, breathing is a great tool or 
you know, the ice bath is a great tool, but we really aren't thinking about what they're best for. And as a result of that, I don't think they'll ever evolve past where they are unless we start thinking, okay, like what's the utility of breath holds? No one can tell me. Like, so my lab is very interested in like in trying to figure out what the utility of breath holds is. Is it better at letting you deal with adrenaline in your system? Is it better at get carbon dioxide tolerance? You know, um, for all the the incredible tools that are out there, there isn't a lot of uh, good information about systematic ways to approach it. And I don't want to peel everything down to like a really reductionist approach. You know, I'm friends with Brian McKenzie and those guys. And, mm -hmm. you know, and Brian's about as reductionist as you get in the breathwork community. And I love how quantify, you know, how he loves to quantify everything. That's one of the things that initially brought us together um, as friends and as, uh, as, you know, sort of informal collaborators. But I think that this world of biohacking needs definition. You know, it's, it's kind of ironic that, in the weightlifting community, they've really worked things down to a kind of a fine science. Whereas in the endurance community, it's kind of like whoever you're listening to seems to be the person who knows the most. And I don't claim to know everything or the most at all. I just would like to see sharper definition on all this stuff about stress, stress mitigation, ice baths, breathing, and so on. And so my lab has been exploring the extent to which different breathing protocols or different hypnosis protocols. Hypnosis is one that we're really interested in. It's used medically and we're interested in it as a stress mitigation tool and a tool for high performance. To what extent those tools can be leveraged to make people, to allow people to make themselves better. Shit, that was good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask so many questions right now. Um, but let's talk, let's talk hypnosis. Mm -hmm. I'm not too familiar with it. Is the idea behind hypnosis that you're put into a trance-like state where your mind is a little bit more malleable and then you can start to imprint different ideas and concepts like self-belief and yeah. Courage. So hypnosis is one that, um, it, you know, it's interesting, like breath work is now starting to hit the mainstream, right? We're looking at this. There are other laboratories looking at this where there's some early discussion about maybe creating consortiums at various institutions around this. If I just called it respiration physiology, it, you know, then everyone's on board. When it was called breath work, people were like, oh, you know, what is that? You know, and people think that there's something about breath work where people close their eyes and lie down. And then everyone thinks like levitation gurus and magic carpets. Long right? beards. Right, exactly. And especially outside the Bay Area. And, you know, Austin's a pretty progressive community. But, you know, um, you know, respiration absolutely can impact the nervous system as well and the brain. Nasal breathing, in fact, has been correlated in two really nice studies with enhanced memory recall just mm. being in nasal breathing and not just for there. I always get beat up. Uh, people try and beat me up on this and they say, Oh, but that's only for, um, memorizing odors, which is kind of like, duh, you know, if you're breathing through your nose for odors, no, it's also for other kinds of memories. So, um, you know, we can, we can fight that out elsewhere, but the, but hypnosis is very interesting because hypnosis, people think about stage hypnosis. They think about the, you know, the guy moving the necklace back and forth and putting people into trance, but here's some, um, fundamental, kind of components of hypnosis. First of all, hypnosis has been used medically to great success. There's a lab at Stanford um, run by David Spiegel, who's a, you know, he's an MD, board certified MD and psychiatrist who uses this for a variety of different things um, to great end, including uh, smoking cessation and, and other things. They've done a lot of brain imaging about what's happening during hypnosis. And what happened, the way he describes it is that during hypnosis, there's a kind of narrowing of context. So it's not that the person is going to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do, but they will say and think and believe things based on suggestions that are independent of the context. So you get this kind of tunnel vision for what's going on. So that if you were hypnotizing me, you could tell me something and you could say, I'm going to, you know, every time I touch the table, you're going to laugh harder and harder. And I might start, and you know, if I'm prone to hypnosis, I would 
um, or suggestible, I might start laughing and laughing because I'm just phasing out all the other people in the room and the context. So hypnosis involves bringing people into a deep state of relaxation, kind of like that first stage of sleep where you'll suddenly kick if you were having a kind of a light dream about running or something. Would this be theta wave state? Yeah, it's sort of like early early theta. Okay. You're sort of drifting in and out of theta and other and other um, deeper sleep uh, states. But um, yeah, you're in a, theta. Theta is a, a reasonable way to think about it. And at that point, you're you're not the way that the hypnotist talks to the patient is that the sentence structure is often broken up so that it's not complete sentences. So it's sort of stripped down into its elemental um, components so that context also falls away. So you start um, hearing things that are, you know, high, high impact words related to whatever it is that you're trying to deal with. In our lab, we use one related to anxiety and stress for people with general, generalized anxiety. Um, so that they're, they, we talk about control, about internal control. And so what you're doing is you're shutting down cortical activity and you're actually trying to engage neuroplasticity and just change in neural circuits at the level of what some people call the subconscious, but you're really talking about subcortical. You know, the subconscious sounds really amazing and, you know, mystical, but it's really subcortical. It's the stuff below deliberate thought. And so hypnosis is one way in which you can introduce new behaviors, you can introduce new beliefs, and but it has to be with the authority of the person who's being hypnotized and not just after the hip, uh, and before the hypnosis, the person being hypnotized has to be interested in gaining the outcome. So I think a lot of people are afraid of hypnosis because they think, you know, you can be reprogrammed in ways that you don't want to be reprogrammed. They watch the movie Get Out. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. <fucked> up. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, it, the brain, you know, we're a self-preservation device first and foremost. And so the brain is really sits at the heart of that, of that device. And so you're not going to start doing things, you know, assuming the hypnotist is responsible, you know, they're not going to start doing things that you wouldn't otherwise do. We can really start to shift beliefs and perceptions. And for addiction, it's a potentially powerful tool because you start to introduce that, that gap that mindfulness and meditation is designed to do that sort of moment between thought and feeling and action where you become more considerate of, of outcomes in both the past, like, oh, you know, when I took on that behavior in the past, it really took me down a bad road. Or in the future, I don't want to disappoint myself or other people. You can really start to introduce that gap. And I think I think in the next few years, um, you're going to see respiration work, breath work really take off in the psychiatric community. And in the kind of, it's already taking off in the general population, of course. Um in the biohacking community, high-performance community. And then you're also going to see hypnosis show up as a tool. I've been doing hypnosis for a long time. I use these scripts just off YouTube. There's this guy, Michael Seeley. I have no, I've never met him. I have no business relationship to him. S-E-A-L-E-Y. I think he's Australian. And he has a bunch of scripts that um, I try and do one once every three or four days. This is just like a video you watch on YouTube. It's and just you audio, actually. Okay. You lie down, you listen. So they range from about 20 minutes to an hour. Um and they range from things like, um, I was using them to improve my ability to get into deep sleep. So one thing that, you know, we hear so much about the importance of sleep, but the last thing you want to tell someone who has trouble sleeping is how important sleep is. It's like it creates this own anxiety. Mm. And so I think I, it was just clear to me that, you know, I'm a big fan of supplements and these kinds of things, but I think, that, you know, I often get asked, you know, like, what's the number one nootropic on the planet? And I say a really good night's sleep, right? Yeah. Without question. Yeah. And so the question is then, how do you get a really good night's sleep? Like I can go online and find tons of information on how to get a great workout in, but how do you get a really good night's sleep? So you can go cold in the room, you wear socks. I know you did something on this recently with the, um, 
with the Woot, the guy who founded Woot. Mm -hmm. That was a great podcast, by the way. I really, Thank you. I learned a ton. Um, but then ultimately, there are people that just have a lot of sleep-related anxiety. And so I was having trouble sleeping and I wasn't worried about anything in particular. And I realized, you know, I'm, in case you haven't noticed, you know, my nervous system goes on pretty easily. Like this is how I am without coffee, right? So, you know, I have a hard time downshifting unless I'm totally exhausted. And so I realized, you know, I need to learn how to sleep better. So I was, I looked up this Michael Seeley guy I've, and there's some scripts there that teach you how to relax your nervous system. The other practice that is really useful, which is very much like hypnosis, is something called yoga nidra, N-I-D-R-A. Some people spend it, spell it N-I-D-R-E. And you can just go onto YouTube and put in yoga nidra. And it's, it literally means yoga sleep. And it, you lie down and it's a script where you listen. They take you into a kind of shallow plane of sleep. And it, what it does is it you do that once or three times a week, maybe anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes a session. And it teaches your body and your nervous system how to downregulate. A lot of people just don't know how to downshift. Is this done through binaural beats or is it like somebody actually talking to you and giving you words that are specifically supposed to trigger you into different states? It's people giving you words designed okay. to trigger you into specific states by focusing your attention into three different spheres of, of kind of consciousness. That sounds very mystical, but really focusing on your internal state, like your breathing and your heart rate versus the surface of your body and contact with whatever surface you're in versus the sounds in the room versus kind of thinking outside the room. These are the different kind of planes of attention that humans can adopt that incidentally other animals, if they do it, we don't know, but humans are really good at this. Like we can, we can riff about mountain view and San Jose in the 19 early 1990s right now, we can transport in time in a conversation. That's the uniquely human ability we think, you know, and, and so these scripts are designed to kind of direct your focus of kind of time and space into specific locations. And by doing that in a particular sequence, and this is what hypnotists are excellent at, it drops the body into the, and mind into a state where you're no longer tracking where you are, which is really the kind of essence of falling asleep, mm. right? And so by these transitions between focusing on your where you are now and other things are really, it's kind of, it's like driving off the, the road, you know? It's like you're, we're mentally, we tend to be within the lane lines or going back and forth. We all know people that, uh, you know, are always going back and forth, but you know, an inability to fall asleep is really being stuck between those lane lines. And so these scripts, whether or not they're hypnosis scripts or yoga nidra, really the way that I interpret them is that they're taking you back and forth across the lane lines of kind of time, time and space. And it's what happens when you're in sleep, you have no control over where you are in those lane lines, which is kind of the essence of dreaming. And so my lab has been using yoga nidra and hypnosis and breathing scripts, but because I'm in the scientific community and if I talked about yoga nidra, hypnosis and, um, you know, breath work, you know, a few years ago, people probably look at me a little askance. I decided to just take those scripts and just strip them down and figure out what are the components? Like they all involve, for instance, long exhale breathing. So getting into sleep inevitably involves blowing off a lot of CO2. You do the opposite thing. You can hold your breath and then your, your autonomic arousal is going to go up. So blowing off CO2, long exhales is a big part of hypnosis. It's a big part of yoga nidra and it's a big part of mitigating the stress response. So I like to kind of, you know, so I, I invite the breath workers because they're some of my friends. So like Wim, Brian, Laird, like all of you guys, like, you know, like let's have a scientific discussion right? About how this really works. There's so much nuance, but let's face it, long exhales, and I know there's variation, but long exhales tend to promote blowing off car carbon dioxide and decreasing levels of autonomic arousal. 
just like in breathing in a lot, I don't want to, you know, blast the microphone here, but kind of Wim Hof type breathing, go sucking air in is going to drive up autonomic arousal. So if you start to look at the different practices that are out there, they tend to take people one direction or another. You get into the ice bath, what are you supposed to do? Nasal breathe, right? Mm -hmm. And get into relaxation. Or if you're somebody who just can't relax in the sauna or in the ice bath, what do you do? You take your arousal up to match the stressor that you're in. So So my lab has been really trying to kind of systematize this. So let's say you're somebody who can get yourself, you know, comfortable. Like I know a guy's, um, I won't throw out his name, but for obvious reasons, but he's a, you know, ex, you know, ex, ex team guy, ex SEAL team guy gets into cold water. He's just like, he's just, he's stoic about it, right? He's clearly able, he's been trained over, he was a professional at lowering his level of autonomic arousal in high stress environments, right? That's what a lot of what those guys get trained to do among many other things. There are other people that getting into the ice bath is so stressful for them. And I wager the hypothesis that in that case where they can't bring their autonomic arousal down, let them ramp it up and get into it through the kind of the stoke of a, like a Wim Hof event where everyone's like kind of high on the event and, um, and on breathing. Those people then get in and it's like a thrill. So autonomic arousal can push you into things. You can tamp it down to kind of learn how to suffer better, so to speak, or to suffer less. Um, you know, you can play at both ends of the spectrum. Hypnosis and breath work of the sort that we're doing in our lab is mostly related to try and bring people's level of autonomic arousal down. But I also think there's tremendous value to having tools that let you increase autonomic arousal to match the, st- the stress of the event that you're in. A fighter in a corner in round nine, I guess I'm thinking, not thinking about MMA, I'm thinking about boxing. You know, it's, in the old days, they used to slap them, right? You know, they used to slap them and they're screaming at them. They're clearly not trying to calm them down, yeah, right? Yeah. What they're trying to do is get them into that kind of top 10% plane of something. And if, you, even if you're if you not a fighter, you're a runner, you know that there's that space where it's great feeling nice and calm while you're, while you're moving, but there's that other space. This is, I, you know, David Goggins alludes to this. We've done a little bit of consulting work t- together back, uh, you know, just once or twice. And David, I think is remarkable in his ability to kind of access that higher plane of, of arousal. And he, he sort of lives there. He, he thrives there. And I think most people never even taste what that place is like. And I think that there's tremendous benefit to knowing that lowering the stress response and moving into uh, stressful environments is one uh, access point but also increasing your autonomic arousal and entering the stress response from that point also has tremendous benefit. So, yeah, I think just from a life standpoint too, like having both ends of the spectrum is really like we're here to experience. That's one of the reasons we're here and to mm-hmm. learn and to grow, but we learn and grow best through experience. Definitely. So that, I mean, even when I retired, we're retired from fighting, I still wanted to do jujitsu competitions because of the fact that that would get my heart rate up and it was putting me in this uncomfortable situation mm-hmm. where I would have to try to stay calm in the storm, mm-hmm. just like an ice bath. But I couldn't really get that with weightlifting, even on like a max effort squad or any of those things, the way that I do with the human interaction. Well, someone wasn't trying to hurt you. Yeah. There's something fundamental about, about that um, interpersonal competition. It's like the tube tests with the rats. You can't you can't recreate that. Now, I, I don't suggest that every. I don't believe that everyone should get out there and fight, right? I, I do believe in competitive sports um, as a great tool. Um, you know, people are really focused on head trauma nowadays, and that's obviously a serious consideration. It's a real thing, right? Um, and depending on how much and, and over what period of time, it's, it's, it's a real consideration. But I think that competition, I was thinking about this the, the other morning, because I, I tend to wake up um, with a, 
a little bit of morning anxiety. It's just kind of, and, I, and I've thought, you know, but I wake up with that morning anxiety and I actually fear the day that I don't wake up with that because I think about it, that's my get up and go. That's my, oh my goodness, I have so much to do. The day I get up and I don't have anything to do is the day I'm going to worry, right? I think that we evolved this internal stress response and, the, and competition as a way to make our species better. I mean, without competition, I'm guessing you wouldn't, if you had no one to fight in those years and now, you know, to roll jujitsu, you probably wouldn't be, I'm guessing, as good a human being overall as you are, right? I mean, it probably, it, it, it helps shape you. Yeah. And so we are in many ways defined by the, by the competitions that, we'll em- that we will embrace. And whether or not that competition is with, you know, um, mental material like books and studying or whether or not it's physical competition, we need external influences. Like I think we, these days we're so attracted to the idea that we can, you know, control everything from the inside, but you need human interaction. Uh, it's absolutely necessary. And I think that, um, you know, it sort of harkens back to the story at the beginning. It's like all the the stress and that I was going through in those years, I mean, it absolutely made me better, right? Absolutely made me better. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't wish hardship on people, but humans are remarkable in their ability to step into challenge and to meet challenge. You know, I think that there's this important and very, very serious conversation now about mental health, right? The number of people suffering is just tremendous. But I think that we also are forgetting that, you know, that suffering process is, is it's a jumping off point, right? And I've had a number of friends commit suicide. I, I understand just how, you know, that's, that's a horrible tragedy and depression is absolutely terrible. But there's also this question of, you know, sort of like, what is our expectation about our mood, right? Like we're so, what are, what are we really, what are we really trying to achieve with our moods? And so I always say, you know, there are five things that embody our whole existence. It's like our sensations, what we feel, our emotions, our perceptions, our thoughts, and our actions. That's pretty much it. And of all of those, the emotions are the most mysterious. It's like, it's kind of a combination of perception and thoughts. You know, you can control your behavior. You can control your thoughts. People often forget this, but your thoughts are your choice, right? I'm not saying you can suppress thoughts. I think there's been a lot of attention on trying to learn how to suppress thinking. I've never been able to suppress thinking, ever. But what I can do is introduce new thoughts. Actually, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, mm-hmm. brilliant author and ex-military guy, he, he really, I think he said something like, you know, he was like in his mid-40s before he had his first real thought. And what I like to think he was referring to was the first time that he realized that you could actually introduce a thought, that, it, that thoughts aren't just all spontaneous, so they can be deliberate. You know, your sensations you can control by your environment and your perceptions are largely about kind of like what sense you, you know, your thoughts about what you sense, right? But your feelings, I think we overvalue feelings. And here I'm going to come across as, you know, kind of a hardened male and about this. I, you know, I would place myself actually kind of on the wide emotionality scale. But I've learned over the years that emotions are just kind of a mishmash of perception and thought. I think we over we overvalue their utility. And this is just my opinion. I don't have any scientific data to support it, but I also don't even know how you study emotions in the lab. Every time I see a laboratory that claims they study emotions, they're studying behavior. Mm. Every time there's, I, you know, people are talking about fear and about courage. They're talking about a behavior that's measured. We don't know what these animals feel. You don't have the foggiest. I don't know what you feel right now. I barely understand what I feel right now. So I think that as a species we've been, and in terms of mental, uh, mental health, We've been over-focused on feelings, and I think we need to think more carefully about physiology. I think we're kind of in the physiology movement right now where people are realizing, wow, you know, these drugs, these, like the opioid crisis, 
really impact our physiology and therefore our emotions and people are, are stricken. It's really terrible. At the same time, I think we need to start thinking about how our physiology can be leveraged to help us. So good sleep being the foremost, the number one thing just without question is good sleep right? To impact waking states in a good way. There's just no question. So then tools to improve sleep of the sort that I described earlier, nidra and hypnosis, just being two of them, long exhale breathing being another one, learning how to downshift. So those are just some practical tools. But then in general, I think that, you know, the field of neuroscience has great responsibility now, and I'm trying to encourage um, this in my community, the neuroscience community, which is let's start having discussions about the brain that are not just about brain structures, about fear or brain structures and, you know, some phenomenon, but let's really start to place this into a context that people can understand so they can better understand themselves. Because scientists are always reluctant to give tools to people because they want to avoid liability. And of course I want to avoid that. That's why I'm talking about things I do, not necessarily what I, I don't prescribe. I'm not MD. I don't prescribe anything. Yeah. I'm a professor. I profess lots of things. That's what I always say, you know, but people can decide for themselves what's useful or not. But or safe or not for them. But I think that in general, you know, we need to rethink emotions. Like what are we really trying to accomplish with our emotional states? And that's a kind of a bigger, deeper question that I'm, I'm curious about. And I think about anyway, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a tangent, but I think we, anytime someone's talking about emotions, I'm sort of like, what do we really like? What's the end goal? Is it to never be sad or is it to be comfortable being sad? You know, is it to never, to be you know, super happy all the time. That's great. But then, you know, without those highs, you can't, without those lows, you can't appreciate the highs. Right? Do you, do you have kids? I do not. Okay. I've got a niece. I've got a 90 pound bulldog. I was going to ask you know? if you've seen the yeah. movie Inside Out. I have not seen Inside okay, Out. Okay. It's yeah. pretty cool. They they basically get into the thoughts of this ch- young girl who's growing up and they have, uh, you know, there's, there's joy, there's sadness, there's anger and all these different pieces to what makes her mm. work internally. And, uh, you know, one of the main lessons in that is that they're all necessary. You know, it's not just about joy. Sadness brings benefit, right? But what you were talking about earlier really made me think of Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth. Mm -hmm. That was when I read that for the first time. And forgive me for anybody who comes on this show. It probably comes up every other show when I bring up this book. But that was the first time where I understood viscerally, I am not my thoughts. I am the awareness that witnesses those thoughts. And so much of that is taught in meditation mm-hmm. where it's mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, you, you can go down the rabbit hole on any thought you choose if you hold on to it, or you can just let it move through you. You're not going to stop the thoughts from moving through you, but you're not the thought. You're not what your thinking is, Absolutely. right? And that'll, that gives you a greater degree of awareness and a greater degree of what you can do moving forward. I think the same can be said for emotions. Like if you feel a certain mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. It's totally fine to feel that, but also to know I'm not that thing. How many people do we know that are in a victim mentality where they're like, I'm really sad or I'm really depressed. And that's the narrative they say to themselves every day and that Mm -hmm. they say to everyone they fucking know. Mm -hmm. And it just locks them into that thing because they're holding on to it rather than letting it move through them. Yeah. It really starts to take on their identity. You know, one reason why, um, and I'm not, uh, to be fair, I don't know him real well, but, um, I put a blurb in for his book on the bat jacket and I, I, I worked out one day with Goggins is an interesting one, right? Um, I look at these, um, these people like Wim, like David, you know, the, you know, these various, um, people as they're very interested. I'm interested in, in what they're able to do. Of course, um, it, tremendously impressive people, right? Real pioneers, in fact, but I'm also interested in why people pay attention to them and what they're really paying attention to. So, you know, like David, 
and this is repeating a little bit of what I said about his book, which um, I'm not here to plug his book. We have no business relationship. I just really, I just really, I worked with him for a day on this consulting thing. And I was like, oh my goodness, this guy is every bit as intense as he shows up on the various public facing things. It was really impressive. You know, middle day, everyone else was kind of dragging. He's like, no, let's go harder. You know? And I was like, wow, it's, it's kind of, it was fun and refreshing, but I also realized that, you know, so what I, when I, and this is, doesn't encapsulate him um, entirely. How could it? But it's just one statement. But what's interesting is that he sort of relegated or pushed down kind of feelings, emotions, and even motivation, right? He sort of placed, you know, that fifth thing, behavior. I was like, you know, sensation, perception, feeling, thought, and action. He places sort of action as holy. Like you go anyway. You do, you know, Jocko's like this too. Mm. You, you go regardless of sensation, perception, feelings, and thoughts. You're just kind of like, eh, like, you know, and you go with action. You let action lead, okay? Other people um, of, of the Eckhart Tolle, of the um, Viktor Frankl sort are sort of like, no, thought is where the power is, right? Thought is where I can third person myself, right? Um, other people like Wim are sort of in the sensation mode. He's, you know, I know Wim well enough to know the backstory and you probably know this too, you know, I mean, he, he found all that in part through tremendous grief over yeah. his wife's suicide, tremendously sad. And, and um, I adore Wim. We've spent a lot of time, done some mountaineering together and uh, spent a lot of time together. And, you know, he found out for himself that moving into sensation could take him out of all the rest and he could third person himself that way. So when you're yeah. thinking about it, all these are different routes to third personing. And this actually, so you, you're, you actually point um, to, you're saying more clearly what I was trying to say before and, and, and kind of failed to. What, you're, what I hear you saying is that when the emotion that you're experiencing or the thought that you're experiencing actually is getting in your way, then becoming that is the worst possible thing that you can do. It kind of eliminates that third person ability. And so- I think it's incredible that, you know, people are looking to David, looking to Wim, and there are others, of course, um, I'm just not including all the names right now, but I think that there are others that where people are taking behavior as an entry point to kind of find the third person, you know, even Murakami wrote the book, you know, what I think about when I think about running. I mean, the guy's like a brilliant writer, you know, creative fiction writer, and he writes this book about running. And if you read the book, the whole thing is about how in running and suppressing his conscious states, he was able to kind of find himself, right? Mm -hmm. So I think we're starting to see a common theme, which is that you can take any one of these different five entry points, but what you can't do is let the system just ride on its own and kind of lead you someplace. When you do that, I think you find yourself in a pretty dark place. And that sort of raises the question, why a dark place? You know, why not a great place? And I think for many people, if they're lucky enough to have the constitution or the kind of um, mood or emotional tone that everything's cheery, um, then, you know, you're lucky perhaps, but those people don't often tend to reach that much, you know, in the, in, in pain and in suffering and in stress, we tend to look for these ways to get out and around ourselves, kind of third person ourselves. I think it's what's so exciting about the biohacking movement, the high performance movement. I think to me, it's just incredible. Maybe it's just from where I sit, but I think it's like the fact that you and I are in the same room, that, that neuroscience cares about the same things that people in the martial arts community care so much about, or in the psychology community, or in the self, whatever you want to call it, self-help, personal evolution community. I really think that we're on the cusp of a, of, a, of a new level of human evolution. I really believe that, where we're thinking about the self and we're making it actionable. We're starting to figure out tools that we can use to get out and around 
this nervous system that on the one hand is really good at supporting our well-being and behavior and outcomes. And on the other hand, can really cripple us. And I really am excited for like where the human species is going to evolve to. Um, one thing that, that what you said also cued me to was that, you know, the, the ability to kind of think in different time reference schemes is something that I think is really important. You know, there's something about grief and emotions in particular, bad emotions, but also positive emotions that sort of narrows our time existence. So like, or our notion of time. And I'm very intrigued by this, but here's the reason why. Let's say I can um, tolerate something bad for one second, pain for one second. If I can tolerate for a second, I can tolerate for 10 seconds, assuming it's not causing tissue damage or something. If I can tolerate for 10 seconds, why not a minute? Well, at some point, emotions have this weird property that they start to create the perception in the person. I've experienced this myself, of course, where it starts to feel like it's either going to go on forever or if it goes away, it's going to come back. It's like this phantom. And I think a big source of mental disease is the idea that, yeah, I'm sad and I'm going to feel better, but then I'm going to feel sad again. And I think the what I would love to see neuroscientists do and people in the mental health community and people in the wellness community do is start to hack that process. What tools can we use that allow someone who's in a deep state of grief and can move out of it or see out of it also understand that it's not a permanent state? So there, it's, there's something, and I don't have any scientific explanation for this, but there's something about emotions. They hijack our sense of time. It's not just our sense of feeling because you've been on the mat in uncomfortable situations. You've been in life in uncomfortable situations. We've all been there. And it's like, you know, it's going to end at some point. Emotions are different. When you're in that mode, you feel as if it's going to go on forever, or it's going to kind of sneak out while you're sleeping and like, you know, like bite you in the neck and invade your nervous system, like some sort of like serpent. And so I think that's the fear. It starts to become what I call meta anxiety, which is fear of being anxious. Right. I'm not just anxious. I'm fear. I'm going to be, I'm afraid I'm going to be anxious. I'm yeah. Afraid, you know, almost like the fear that you won't sleep when you can't sleep at night. Exactly. So, um, this is more of a call to arms than it is a, um, I don't have any good answers for this, but I think that pinpointing the problem is the first step in finding a solution. And the problem that I'm trying to pinpoint is that it's not just that emotions hijack your ability to get up and go out for a run. You know, the thing that David and Jocko and these guys have clearly learned how to bypass, right? Whatever I feel, I'm going to go anyway. You know, it's the notion that, you know, I feel a certain way. I think for the person who's really like burying their head under the covers and doesn't want to like go out and is like clinically depressed, it's the idea that they're in pain and it's just going to go on forever. And that's the thing that we really need to attack is the go on forever part. I don't think we need to attack the pain or the sadness part. I think we need to attack the go on forever part. And so um, I'm also encouraging my colleagues in the psychiatric community and in the neuroscience community, like, let's figure that out. Where does the sense of time come from in the brain? You know, grief, when somebody dies, we, we say, you know, this too shall pass. Eventually we know it gets better, but some people are collapsed by grief and they commit suicide. And so if we want to mitigate suicide, which I think everyone believes is a good thing to try and do, then let's go after the sense of time. And so I know it's a kind of abstract thought and kind of, but I think it has great utility. I think if we can do that, we will change mental disease and the way that mental disease is treated forever. And I'm not going to solve it on my own. I'm going to take a stab at it. I'm going to put everything I've gotten to it, but it's going to take a community of people working on this, both in the scientific community and in the um, exterior community. I think it's not often something I talk about, but um, you know, I think the incredible fascination with psychedelics is 
in part an attack on on this notion of how we perceive time. I don't want to say attack because it's not very in keeping with the with the why most people go into it. But that you know, I think most people are trying to understand themselves in time, not just in space. And and um, that's not. And this isn't a plug for psychedelics. Nor I think actually a lot of it is being. Used I'm going to plug them. You, you you may. <laughs> I can't from the. I should just say from the position I sit in, I, I can't mm -hmm. do that responsibly. You know, um, I'm not. I, I think. I want to under, so again, I look at it a little bit from the outside. I think, why are people so excited about them as opposed to me being excited by them, right? So I personally am, um, it's not my, my leaning. It's not my orientation. I don't judge, but it's just not, I'm, it's not my thing. So, um, but I find it incredible that so many people are focused on, on them as a potential tool. And they do have certain properties that are, um, that are, really related to time-space relationships. They tend to bend space-time relationships so that if this were a psychedelic trip and my dog Costello suddenly like floated through the window, that would, that would be amazing, but it wouldn't necessarily be entirely surprising. It'd be like, we would accept that time-space violation. You go and see a magic, uh, like a go see magic, like people doing cards, they're violating your space-time relationship. Anytime a magician, uh, you know, appears to levitate, you're like, wow, it's like a violation of your space-time understanding. Flow states, right? Flow a states. big wave surfer, right. jumping out of an airplane. Right. So, you know, um, I think if your listeners take away nothing else about neuroscience, I think this is the most important thing everyone should understand about the brain. Your brain is trying to understand statistics. It's trying to understand the, the statistics of your environment and your internal state, your internal environment. So inside you, it's trying to just understand the statistics. When am I happy? When am I sad? What makes me happy? What makes me sad? What makes me feel good? What makes me feel worse? What is going on in the room? Who's a, you know, who's friend, who's foe, who's neutral, who's a threat, this kind of thing. Who's a potential mate, who's not. There's like fundamental operations that are happening below the, the conscious state, you know? And so psychedelics and sleep for that matter. I'm actually very excited about sleep as a way to access a lot of the things that I think people are using psychedelics to try and achieve. And this isn't a knock on psychedelics. I just, like I said, you know, I'm in the biomedical community. These are drugs that are under, um, currently under investigation for um, exploration for their medical utility, but those are still clinical trials that are still ongoing. Like the data aren't back. So until the data are back, I kind of hold you know, mm -hmm. I'm going to just see what the data is. I'll say. vouch anecdotally. Yeah. yeah, you can vouch anecdotally, <laughs> right. No, and, and you have liberty to do that. Clearly people are deriving, um, are, are interested in them and are interested in deriving benefit from them. And they tend to bend the space-time relationship. So fundamentally, it's about changing the space-time relationship. And, and it is interesting that most of the discussion about psychedelics is about them in reference to mental disease. You know, I, I think everyone would agree that, I, I would hope, that recreational use of drugs, purely recreational use, uh, you know, is potentially hazardous just for our, our species, right? And especially for kids and things of that sort, just really potentially hazardous. But as a therapeutic tool, I, it brings me back, you know, it's like, okay, here again, we have a tool where it's changing people's relationship to how they perceive the self in time, right? And I think that an ability to know that things pass, an ability to know that what you're feeling in the moment is not a permanent state and doesn't necessarily return, an ability to know that your identity 10 years ago hopefully isn't your identity now and you can actually transform your identity over time is immensely powerful. It's when we get into these locked regimes of who we are, how we feel, how we think, that kind of the like impending doom really 
takes over, not to be dramatic about it, but everyone I know that is, that isn't able to adopt a kind of different ideas about how things could be different on the outside and on the inside is suffering, right? And everyone I know that has the kind of mindset, unfortunately, I happen to know a lot of people like this, that understand that, yeah, your internal state is something you can shift with exercise, with movement, with ice bath, with breathing, with whatever your, your particular leanings are, then they seem to understand that, that like grabbing hold of that internal real estate first is kind of a door that opens like, oh, my world and my life is actually something I completely control. And so this conversation, this portion of the conversation might not seem that scientific, but it's absolutely scientific in the sense that the brain is a time-space statistical guessing machine. It just wants to know what's coming next. That's all it wants to know. And so if you can start to expand the notion of what's come, what could come next, you really start to open up possibility. And in possibility, you start to open up the physiology of the body to explore. And in exploration, you get different outcomes. So these, I think, that this kind of mystical or abstract level of the conversation is really at the core of what human beings are best at, which is using the front of our brain to conceive new ways of doing things. This is like the reason we're not, this is the reason we run the planet and other animals don't. It's like my dog Costello doesn't wake up and say, oh, you know, I want more food. So I'm, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tomorrow, you know, he just basically is like, he does what he needs to, to get what he needs in the moment. We're the planners. And in planning, we can do so much more, but in planning, it's also where we suffer if we plan to feel the same way. So in a lot of ways we're planning to feel the same way. Uh, we, yeah, and we're yeah. planning for negativity rather than positivity. Definitely, that, and that's a really gross like way to narrow it down. But um, you touched on a lot here. Like I, I had battled pretty severe depression uh, coming out of college, and really it was that sense that this will never end. There was no light at the end of the tunnel, and then through moving through that, being introduced to plant medicines and and. Uh, psychedelic drugs, or to put it plainly, mm -hmm. uh, really did give me a different perspective on things. And sure, there's definitely, I mean, there's all sorts of components when it comes to time, like even seeing the past from a different angle with a new lens is, is critical for healing. But then in the future, the present, looking at what's going to happen forward and the different trajectories that are possible, it just opened up whole new worlds to me. Um, I wanted to ask you, because Johns Hopkins, I think, is working on a uh, psilocybin study for depression right now. Obviously, MAPS is pushing MDMA through phase three trials. And they've got breakthrough status with the FDA for PTSD, and that's all psycho-assisted. It's not like you'll go to Walgreens and pick up uh, an eighth of, of mushrooms and head home with it. Um, my question to you is, are you guys studying anything uh, with the brain and altered states of consciousness? And this could be something as simple as like um, a float tank or something like that. Yeah. So my lab isn't working on any of those um, things specifically. And I should just say, um, you know, I have immense sensitivity to the communities that care about these issues. Right. And I, I, I just as a quick editorial, like I, I am absolutely thrilled that people are thinking and talking about the brain and states of consciousness. You know, I, I lived in this kind of like lonely place for the longest time where I was like, I was, I was like embarrassed to talk about my interest in psychology and in meditation and things. And like, it's, it's amazing. Our species has evolved. Right. And I wasn't ahead of my time. I just think that the psychedelic discussion is an important discussion. And I, I actually, I tip my hat to you and to a, a number of your friends who have who opened up this discussion and uh, responsibly. I think that, 
Um, it's something that as long as we're trying to hide something, we're in trouble, right? So the fact that discussion is out there means that we're going to, in five years time, we're going to look back. And I think the work that you've done and the work that people are doing at Hopkins and these other places is going to take us to a new and far better place. I really believe that. So, um, so I appreciate, and I appreciate that. I think that's going to change the way we think about human consciousness. I I fundamentally do. And um, in terms of altering states using other tools. So my lab is mainly been focusing on respiration hypnosis and this Nidra-like protocol. And I say Nidra-like because, you know, unfortunately naming like Nidra, Kundalini, uh, Wim Hof breathing, the naming um, is either commercial related or it, um, it starts to alienate people who would otherwise come to the table because they hear that stuff and it sounds really mystical. So what we've done is we've really just stripped those things down into their kind of core elements that we can measure. We're not doing float tanks. It would be fun to do um, an exploration of float tanks. Part of the problem is I have to get people to drive to Stanford campus, find parking. We give them a parking pass. We pay them. So wait, so if you want to be a subject in our experiments, can I plug this? Yes, okay. please. Okay, I have a lab Instagram. I don't have a personal Instagram, but you'll, you can see my face there because I do a daily... Um, not that seeing me is the important part, but the I do a daily neuroscience information post. It's Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. So at Huberman Lab. And then we recruit subjects there. So you can send a DM there and we can bring you to the lab. We pay you. Um, it's not a tremendous amount of money, but we pay you for your time. We give you a parking pass. You come to the lab. You come in. It's about two hours in the middle of the day, typically. Um, and we can we measure different anxiety states. We take you through um, these sort of intervention protocols. One of those three, we randomize them. We also have controls, um, which is interesting. You rarely hear about controls, right? So you can hear a hypnosis script or our control involves hearing something that is matched for tone con and everything except the ex exact word content. So in the, unfortunately in the biohacking community, there aren't a lot of controls. People see effects, they report effects, but you want good controls, sort of placebo, right? So we also compare to placebo. Um, so it's hard to get people to come in and, and also do, uh, the, something like a, a float tank. It's just the time involved and the sort of inconvenience involved would limit the number of subjects, but we are very interested in bringing, um, hypnosis and breath work in, in a kind of larger scale. So we're talking about expanding to other universities and running, um, things in parallel. And we also have a way that we can do this remotely. So when we have a patient that has electrodes in their amygdala, we drive the, basically this whole setup typically up to UCSF or another location. And we run it on the patient because they often can't come to us. Mm. So, but if people are willing to come to us, we can give them one of those three interventions. I think um, the, the float tank is a very interesting one because that's working at the level of sensation, right? So it's really when it's sensation, perception, feeling, thought, action, it's kind of like this mantra of mine, but the, it's working at manipulating sensation of kind of taking you out of that space time um, typical space-time relationship where there's a table here in front of me and, you know, and you're trying to kind of um, trick the body's perceptions into thinking that what you feel in the moment is kind of extended out in space and in time. And I know for some listeners, this might be a little bit kind of uh, woo or hard to appreciate, but um, one way you could do this is if I tell you now to like focus on the feeling on the bottoms of your feet, you were focusing on the, that you were sensing the bottom from the bottoms of your feet all along, but your perception wasn't directed there. So in the float tank, your perception is such because of the temperature of the water and the salinity of the water that your perception starts to sort of expand to regions outside your body, right? So that you're no longer paying attention to the interface of the surface of your body that's outside the water, the surface of your body that's under the water. And so that kind of perceptual distortion leads you to 
um, a, a state in which your thoughts are tethered differently to sensation, and now your thoughts can drift in new dimensions that they're normally not going. This is what happens in sleep all the time, except that you're not able to direct it. Whereas when you maintain some level of consciousness, like you're awake in the float tank, then you can start to, you take off down that road. Let's stay with the lane lines uh, kind of um, metaphor from before. So you're driving between the lane lines. I make the temperature of your of the water and the salinity, uh, the salt concentration of the water such that now one of those lane lines just kind of evaporates. And now you start drifting off in this direction, but you're not, but you're not asleep at the wheel, right? You're actually holding the steering wheel and you're like, oh, I've never driven through a field like this before. I'm going to keep driving through this field. And then all of a sudden you snap back because you're like, oh, I'm in a float tank. But then you start drifting again and you start heading off. Now in sleep, you're meandering across the lane lines all the time and you're not in control. It's like there's this little demon inside, like turning the wheel. <laughs> Psychedelics, from what I understand, right, is a little bit like the float tank in the sense that you can, it takes you off in a direction, somewhere between sleep and the float tank. And now you can meander so off in a different direction. And then you might see something. So you said you got a new perspective on, on suffering, on trauma. When, when you said that, I almost interrupted you, but I refrained because I was really curious, like getting a new lens on your own experience involves changing your, your sensation and your perception of something, a memory, right? And you, it sounds so easy to do on the one hand, but it's so hard to do in this thing because your brain right here in this room is locked to the statistics of the room. It's like, no matter how hard I hit myself on the side of the head, I can't get my mind to see something differently. Psychedelics and sleep and things like the float tank and deep forms of like Vipassana meditation allow people to kind of shut down either sensation or perception. Oftentimes it's action. Like in Vipassana, you're supposed to sit for long periods of time. You're not supposed to speak. These are different routes. You're basically shutting down brain areas. And then in doing so, you kind of, you move your consciousness through a different route to achieve the same end and you see a different perspective. And so if this is sounding all very um, mystical, you're nodding. So I, I like to think this makes is making some sense. Perfect sense to me, yeah, for sure. Right, you've been there. And so I think the key is how can we lift and move those lane lines? And what is the best route to take? Like, so the lane line comes off and you're like, oh, wow, I can actually fly above the road, right? So from that perspective of seeing something painful or even something positive, like the birth of a child or like your lifetime, from that perspective, what are some deliberate routes that you can take? And this is where I think that if eventually psychedelics become a, a valid clinical tool in the, a legal clinical tool, because I think they are showing some promise um, and it will, it probably will happen given the way things are going, you know, there's going to be great responsibility of the therapists that are guiding these sessions. Tremendous responsibility in the same way that I think a lot of people that are do, doing breathwork release work aren't qualified to take people where they need to go. And you're talking about like holotropic breathing and stuff. Holotropic breathing. It's a, it, again, you're using the nervous system. Breath work. Yeah, you're yeah. using an entry point. You're taking people into these heightened states of arousal. People are having experiences. And I'm not here to knock on anybody. I'm not a clinician, so it's not like I could do it any better. But I think that we need to understand how the uh, the practitioner, the, the clinician, um, you know, their communities in South America and Central America have been doing this for a long time, of course, that are skilled in guiding people in particular directions. So what's the, you know, what route to take, you know? And I think the reason for asking that is pretty important. It's, you know, it's the difference between needing to go back and back over and over again into that experience repeatedly versus maybe just once. 
It's the difference between being able to derive a lot of utility from the float tank for people that are not inclined to use psychedelics, right? Or mm-hmm. where, or, or young kids where the brain is immensely plastic, right? Um, you know, in young kids, you know, you have to treat any intervention that you use, anything, even if it's breath work as a serious consideration. You know, I've had some people approach me about like, hey, should, you know, eight-year-olds, you know, should my kid be Wim Hofing, you know, for jujitsu practice? I, I don't know, probably not, right? I mean, these are, you know, maybe, maybe not. That's not my place to say. I think that, but anytime you have a power tool that's going to disrupt this relationship between sensation and perception and thought, whatever the tool, it needs to be something that is in a relatively controlled environment where the person that's guiding the experience is highly skilled. And I actually think that we should um, create certification programs for these things. Uh, I think that there should be some way of knowing that the person that's guiding you through something knows what they're doing uh, in order to get, not just to avoid bad stuff, because this all sounds very sinister, but also to get you the maximal benefit, yeah. right? And I, I love what you said about seeing a new perspective, because that's the thing that's so hard to do. I can't look at this bottle of water and create a new sense of meaning about it that isn't psychosis. You know, the definition of psychosis is assigning meaning to things that have no meaning. When you walk down the street and someone comes up to you and starts talking gibberish, it's really sad because they're hearing and seeing meaning in things where there is no meaning. But the ability to do that a little bit for your own life experiences or your other people's life experiences is the difference between depression and happiness. It's the difference between empathy and being and being compassionate towards somebody and being highly critical and feeling kind of like angry at the world. So um, I, I think we need to systematize some of this stuff. And um, one reason why I you know, came out here, you know, I've heard a lot about you guys. I, again, I, I know and, and love the work that you've done and, and through on it and, and the discussions that you've held. I listened to them. And I think that it's important that we not just like make everything ultra scientific and dry either. And so I'm one of these people that kind of traverses back and forth between these communities um, because I hope that in doing so, the discussion is going to lead to people, practitioners, people in every one of these communities that is going to really care about the endpoints. And so, you know, at some point it's going to be useful to think about like, where are we trying to go with all this, right? Anyway, I'm riffing long. I love morning. it, brother. Right, You're well, crushing it. I guess I feel at home here. You guys are very <laughs> cordial from the moment I walked in. Texan, well, Texan hospitality. I would, uh, yeah, I'm very curious about what, what kind of stuff you're doing at the lab because I'd love to come through. Obviously, my family's still back in the Bay and I visit there often. I'd love yeah, to pay do. you a visit. That yeah. would be excellent. Yeah, please um, do. Yeah, we're exploring, um, trying to understand the stress response, trying to understand when to tamp it down and when to... Um, increase it as a way to access high performance, cognitive performance, physical performance. We are um, using entry points like vision, hypnosis, et cetera. You've heard some about those here. Uh, um, Vision is one that we haven't talked a lot about, but I'm absolutely fascinated by the use of the visual system and modes of viewing the world, either focused vision or panoramic vision as ways of dilating one's time, understanding of time. And that's kind of a whole nother discussion. Maybe we have another, uh, in another uh, uh, time, but um, because the visual system is the mode in which the brain and body come to sort of adopt different time regimes or ways of, of sort of uh, thinking about the outside world. So that's something that we're interested in, but I'd love to have, uh, have you through anytime you have VIP to my lab come awesome. through um, and, 
it'd be great. I, it's a fun place, and we got a lot of a lot of great tech toys because it's the Bay Area. We got some great VR. We discarded with all the computer generated imagery. We have a friend Michael Muller, who's a world famous photographer in Hollywood, who also does shark diving, and um, so we filmed 360. VR of great white sharks and like brought real footage to the lab because the the computer generated images are kind of lame to be mm. honest. So bringing real experiences to the lab to make it as realistic as possible is a big part of what we do. So yeah, all that stuff. Hell yeah. Well, we can leave that as the teaser trailer for when I come into to the lab. Because yeah, that'll that be excellent. Be and I'll bring Giles that. out. We'll get some video footage and some really cool content there. Sure. Um, amazing. And I definitely want to have you back on. So we'll bring podcasting gear too and we'll just We'll do it up. That would be great. And Thanks I'll, so I'll, much I'll for having me on. Dude, you've been amazing. Yeah. So just uh, Huberman La- at Huberman Lab. Yeah, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B. So at Huberman Lab at Instagram. I have a lab webpage too, but it all links out from there. Instagram okay. seems to be the sort of jumping off point for most things nowadays. Perfect. So. Man, it's been excellent having you, brother. Oh, thank you so, so much. much. I really appreciate it. Oh yeah. Cheers. Thank you guys for tuning in to the Human Optimization Hour with my man, Dr. Andrew Huberman. We had a great episode. I know you loved it. Hit him up on the gram. That's where you'll find him at Humorman Lab. And also hit me up at Kingsboo on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, go to onit.com slash podcast for 10% off all supplements and food products.